Media. On this show, we speak to two indigenous warriors on the front lines of resistance to pipelines and resource extraction, Kanahos Manuel and Mayak Manuel of the Tiny House Warriors and the Shamukmuk Women Warriors. They have actively resisted the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project, which would move tar sands, crude, and refined oil from Alberta to the British Columbia coast. Just millimeters from the injunction zone around the proposed pipeline expansion at Blue River, British Columbia, north of Kamloops, Kanahos and Mayak speak to No Borders Media by phone and address several topics, including an update about current opposition efforts against 518 kilometers of Trans Mountain Pipeline Corridor on Shemekwalk territory, the impact of man camps used to construct the expansion, the use of wheeled tiny houses as a tactic of resistance, a recent symposium in celebration of the life and ideas of Arthur Manuel, ongoing criminalization of land defenders, the various flawed consultation processes to try to force through pipeline approval, and solidarity between indigenous land defense struggles across Turtle Island. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. We go to our feature-length interview with Shemakmalk Women Warriors Kanawis Manuel and Mayak Manuel right now. I'm speaking with Kanahus Manuel and Mayuk Manuel. Mayuk and Kanahus are tiny house warriors and Shikmakmak women warriors. They are in Blue River. They are just literally millimeters away from the injunction zone that's been set up by Trans Mountain, which is trying to build an extension to their pipeline between northern Alberta and the British Columbia coast. We spoke with Kanahos one year ago when the Federal Court of Appeal temporarily suspended approval for the project, but much has changed and much has happened since we spoke a year ago. Kanahos and Mayuk, welcome to No Borders Media. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you back. It's always it's important to have you on, on the show, but it's also inspiring to hear about your efforts at, at frontline resistance against tremendous odds. And before getting into the resistance efforts you've undertaken in terms of trying to stop this pipeline from being built, maybe you can just situate our listeners in terms of where you're at today, physically speaking, but also what's up with this pipeline. When we spoke a year ago, Kanahus, it was temporarily suspended, but it sort of felt like something was going to happen and more stuff has happened in that last year. So can you talk about where you're at right now and what's happening in terms of this pipeline and the pipeline being built, just in terms of giving our listeners a general sense of, of what's going on, especially those people who might not know some of the details? Well, for this past year, we've been blockading. We've been here at the site of this proposed man camp by the Trans Mountain Pipeline just recently with the approval for construction to go ahead and they got the green light to go ahead with this construction it shows again how the canadian government just totally ignores that we have title that we have rights land rights um, legitimate land rights here in 
Suquamook territory in so-called British Columbia since there has never, ever been a treaty with the provincial or the federal government. No governments, not the colonial Great Britain. And here we are um, a year later after blockading this man camp and, and still construction is going ahead. We We knew that the federal government purchased the pipeline in order to push this construction through. And that's why we're here on the ground um, ensuring that this construction doesn't go through the pipes along the Yellowhead Highway all the way north to Stockpiles and Edson and farther north into Edmonton. Um, just continue to, you know, stockpile these pipes and, and continue to prepare to lay these pipes. Um, we saw at Standing Rock 100 pipes per day. Um, this geographical area that this pipeline proposes to pass um, Again, this pipeline is 1,142 kilometers long, and over half of this pipeline threatens to cross Suquamook territory. There's already an existing pipeline that lays there, um, an old 1953 pipeline, and so this, this expansion would twin this line and bring this um, to 890,000 barrels of bitumen per day. Um, it's rough mountainous terrain there's a lot of river crossings and water crossings and watershed and home to so much including home to our people and our way of life and some threatened species such as the mountain caribou and our sockeye salmon runs mayuk did you want to add anything yeah since the um trans mountain was ordered to go back to the consultation and do another round of consultation because the first round was not sufficient enough there this was the phase three of the indigenous consultation so this didn't go well at all it actually went worse than the one before and I was arrested at at the one in Kamloops at the indigenous consultation right in my own territory I was arrested along with my partner I should Jules and my younger sister Snutetko Emanuel we were all arrested and um, jailed till late into the night that night until after they were finished their consultation and um one of the they had federal security guards and some like a, a lot of different police agencies that are normally not involved and even enter into cameras but they brought them in special to take down the the Suquamish women warriors they knew already that we were there they they targeted me thinking I was Kanahus and they made arrests very quickly and they put us in handcuffs and they hauled us off to the Kamloops city cells. So that's, um, to, to us, that's a really mockery of us, as our, of our Indigenous rights, of our Suquamook rights, when we go there to say no to a, a fraudulent uh, consultation because they, it was behind closed doors. They never let any of the people know. And here we're unceded territory, so we still hold collective title. And collective title means that it belongs collectively amongst the people. It's not the INAC chiefs that hold the title. That's a federal civil servant. Those are federal civil servants that work for the federal government. And that's all that composed the group that was in that consultation was all INAC federally, federally elected chiefs that were there that work for the federal government. And they're all pro-pipeline. So it's not only that that has happened since the Federal Court of Appeal, since then, there's several chiefs that have come forward that are are planning to buy the pipeline, and and we're we're totally against that because they too will be guilty of violating our indigenous rights 
and our inherent rights to this land and our collective title. And for us to be able to say no to projects like this that will destroy us as Sakham people. We're going to take some time during this interview to talk about the criminalization and the injunction and these sham consultations. We're going to talk a bit about the man camps that have been set up and why you're opposing them, the various forms of resistance, including tiny house resistance, a recent symposium. But before getting into it, I want each of you to talk about your territory, your land. What are you defending? I mean, you've talked about just in passing just now about this land, this pipeline passing over many lakes and rivers. But talk about this territory that you're on right now, that you've defended, uh, the Shemekwalk territory that your your father and your grandfather and your ancestors have lived on and defended and that you're, you're raising your children up on. Uh, give a sense to our listeners as best as you can and as best as we can understand as listeners who are not from there, what, what is this land and territory that you're defending? What does that land and territory mean to you? Okay, it's kind of who's here. Um, our, our territory, Sukhotmuk territory, is 180,000 square kilometers of land. This land we call Sukhotmuk Uluk, and it refers to the land of the spilling waters, of the glaciers, of the all the, all the water that spills from this glaciers that drops um, and forms all the major rivers in, in, in so-called British Columbia. And this area is a very rare inland temperate rainforest. Um, we come from this very rare inland um, temperate rainforest and we're cedar people. We were salmon people. Also, we're the protectors of the salmon spawning grounds. It's uh, in the, into the interior, through the mountains, all the way up the Fraser, into the Thompson, into the Adams um, rivers that some of the biggest sockeye salmon spawning grounds in the world are and this is our backyard this is where we grew up and this upper adams river belt is not that far um maybe a mountain or two over from where we are right now here in blue river and right now we've we're just right in the middle of a rainforest so it's raining right now it's been raining for the past week and there's a lot of snow. We spent the whole winter here um, blockading this man camp construction and being active, asserting our, t- our title on the land here. And there's a lot of snow, and it really gave us a real clear wake-up call to, to say, no, we can't allow this bitumen pipeline to come through just with the amount of snow that comes through here through these mountain passes all the way from Edmonton, who already is extreme winter weather, all the way into our mountains. Um, a lot of snow and a lot of water that we're, we're talking about. And we've, we have a language, Sukhwatmukjin, uh, and it's at a very rare and endangered um, levels right now in our, in our nation. There's not that much fluent language speakers left in each of the Sukhwatmuk communities, and it's something that we really also put support behind all the teachers and, and, and language speakers in our community because that's where a lot of our stories are, a lot of our songs, a lot of our, our knowledge. And my grandfather would say that the, our language, it flows from the land just as our culture, it flows from our land. And we've developed a really advanced way of life and colonization during this past 150 years here in Canada has 
really damaged it to a state we're in right now, you know, the residential schools, the reservation system, um, the federal government and, and their racist and white supremacist laws and policies that removed us from our lands really affected us because it's our land that we're talking about now. Um, it's, it's always going to come back to our land, our, our land base. We, we know we need a land base in order to survive, just basic survival, but also for to have some type of economy for our people to benefit so we can um, not just struggle in a 0.2% mentality. Um, if you add up all the Indian reserves in Canada equals 0.2%. And so this is where we've been placed these past 150 plus years. And we have no other choice now since... Um, since just the state we're in, um, we're never going to grow as a nation. Um, we're going to just continue to see the symptoms of colonization and the addictions and drugs and alcoholism and um, just our people leaving the leaving our communities and going into urban settings and and we're we're losing our our nations of people and but that's another part of our work that we do. In, in our resistance movement, in our decolonization movements, in our food sovereignty movements, and all of this is, is linking the connection between, you know, our land, our food, our human rights, our, you know, our birthing practices, you know, everything of who it, it, it means to be who we are as Sukhwatmuk people, to be self-determined, to, um, our vision of, of what we want our vision for our children, our vision for, for the future of our nations is something very healthy and powerful and strong. It's something where everybody gets fed, where everybody gets a house, where everybody gets their rights respected, where everybody can speak their language freely. And so it's not just stopping a pipeline. It's, it's fighting for our, our lands, our, our territory, and we're so connected to it. It's, it's such a beautiful relationship, and thank you. Mayak, do you want to talk a little bit about about the territory and land that you're defending? Yeah, so we're, we're Sikwam, and we believe that our territorial authority lies within the people, most particularly the women. The matriarchs is where the title flows from our blood into our children, and so the birth work that my sister does on our land, on our territory, is very, very important and crucial. Um, on our territory, um, although that we're still able to practice our way by berry picking and hunting, it's becoming more and more scarce. We see it, you know, we see it with the animals having to go more into urban settings to get their food. That's the same with us. We're being affected by the, the land trauma that is happening out on our territory. And this includes the transportation routes that we once flourished and benefited from these these trail roads, these trade roads, these transportation routes that we got um, stolen and ripped from our economy. And these are like highway, the Trans-Canada Highway number one, the number five, Yellowhead Highway, these, this pipeline corridor, these are all our economic trade routes that, like my, my father, Arthur Manuel, would say, us, we come from the most 
fierce entrepreneurs. And I'm not afraid to say that. Yeah, I'm against this pipeline, but I believe in the true entrepreneurship of our land and how we could keep it safe and healthy for all of us. I don't believe in pipelines. I believe in balancing industry with our health as a nation. That's true economy. That's how we're going to be wealthy far, far, far into the future is looking and and seeing our economy in a way where we balance industry and health. Um, With these transportation routes, yes, um, yes, we do travel them because, like I said, there are routes. Um, What I learned about our trade routes and our trails was that we followed and we copied these animals and the best traveler of the land is the coyote. The best traveler of the land. And and um, we all know that that's our teacher. And these these trade routes, they were they were enshrined in our DNA. This is this is where our missing and murdered women. This is where our own sisters are going missing right now. So it's taking something. Um, that's really entrenched in the way we see our land rights and title, the women, and how our, our um, title runs and through the blood of the women and to her children. And now these same transportation routes are being used to rip the women from our nations and from our economy. Um, and this is really devastating to our people. It's very traumatic. I don't know if we're ever going to come back from what is happening to the women that our women are being taken, they're being stolen, they're being murdered. I don't know if our nations as Indigenous will ever come back from this. But me and my sister are here. We're saying no to man camps. We're saying no to the the violence on our land and these transportation routes. And soon you'll see us targeting these transportation routes. And it's going to cause a lot of um, disturbance, even one hour, even two hours. And and the more and more we encourage other people to do it, we're going to disrupt a lot of the economy here here in the world. By disrupting it here on these highways, our transportation routes, we disrupt the world's economy. We're learning more and more about that from, from um, the, the experts that we brought together for this symposium. And kind of who could talk more about that, but that's, it's really important to learn from the economists from Canada, how we could take down Canada as well. We're speaking with Kanehos Manuel and Mayak Manuel. They are just millimeters away from an injunction zone set up by Trans Mountain Pipeline. They are tiny house warriors, Shamakmok women warriors. Kanehos and Mayak, you've both spoken about the man camps that you're opposing. This is one manifestation of of the pipeline project in order for it to be built, these man camps are set up. So can you tell our listeners, what are these man camps? Why are you opposing them? What are the the negative effects of of these man camps? And why has this become one of your focuses for opposition to the the pipeline on your territory? Kind of who's here. These man camps, um, in particular, this man camp here in Blue River that Trans Mountain has set for uh, a thousand men, construction workers that would come in to lay the pipe, that would be the construction workers um, all along this pipeline corridor. They have different sites plotted for man camps. Um, one here in Blue River, there's a Belmont site, there's uh, 
the Clearwater site and Kamloops, which would be just within the city city of Kamloops into the, the hotels and um, other housing. There will also be uh, man camp sites in Merritt and Hope, which are outside of the Sequatmuk territory, but also just as vulnerable to Indigenous women and girls. Um, these man camps, uh, the majority are, are transient men, um, workers that come to these sites, this, the man camps that have been plaguing the areas of North Dakota, you know, the back in um, the northern Alberta and Fort McMurray, Edmonton area, have shown to increase violence against Indigenous women. We're talking about se- sexual attacks and rapes. Uh, we're talking even about domestic violence increase in the homes. A lot of times these men, mainly men, will leave their their wives and their communities and come to these isolated communities and have no accountability. They don't know anybody in these communities and they leave their wives at home. And so the human trafficking, you know, becomes very prevalent and it's our indigenous girls and women are that are the most vulnerable in the human trafficking. And so again, we talk about the murdered or missing Indigenous women and girls because it's something that every single Indigenous community across the country, every single family within Indigenous country and Indian country has felt the wrath of one of their loved ones, their women and girls in their family either being murdered or missing. And that's not an exaggeration. My, I, myself, and my family, and my sister have lost our grandmother um, to murder. And so nobody is excused from this in Indian country. And by having man camps come into these communities where Indigenous girls are the most vulnerable, we'll we'll see the amounts increase. And it's too much to risk. It's just way too much to risk because we hear the stories. We hear of the stories of our, our girls from our communities going into these camps to work as um, janitors and custodians only to leave just damaged by rape. This is a real life story of our girls in our communities. And Mayuk, do you want to add anything about, about the man camps and your opposition to it? A lot of people who who haven't been around a large group of men, like in the 100 or 200, 300, 400, 500, but like I, I, my partner, he was in the U.S. Army. Aisha Jules, he's just a Fatmas veteran, and he, um, he reminds, he reminds people at the front gate. He reminds men who are saying these are good jobs, these are good camps. He reminds, he, he lets them know, no, I was actually a part of a big, huge man camp called the U.S. Army. And no, when you put men together, that much men together, no, you don't want to send women around them. You know, this is people who who think that they have integrity. They're going to go get a job. They're going to get work. No, no. The social, the social cost of having just only men or majority men in in these camps is not healthy. It's not healthy for your mind, heart, body, and spirit, and just being holistic. It's just um, it's not safe. It's not safe to even put them. I don't believe in having man camps anywhere within Tikamakuluk or anywhere in in Canada, for that matter. I don't believe in it. And when I start doing the research about these man camps, I realized that they they set up Canada 
on, with Nancam. These men have been raping women. I start looking at um, even Geronimo reading what him started. He got started because those man camps were raping Indigenous women and his own family members. That's what caused the big disturbance, like why he rose up into action. So enough of women are getting murdered. Or we Just recently, like it's a lot. It's, yeah, it is. It's genocide. And just recently, there's a court case going on right now in... Salmonarm, is it, or in the, Okan- in the Okanagan, but it was just 45 minutes from where Marion Canahus grew up that they found a dead body right beside this man's trailer in, the pro- in his parents' his parents owned this property. He was living on a trailer, and they found a dead body right there buried in the ground. This man, they say, they have no evidence to prove that he's guilty. He's going to court, but it looks like he's going to get off. And this reminds me of Gerald Stanley. This reminds me he already hit um, women in the heads with hammers. I don't know all the details. I just know that this guy's guilty. And this is the vulnerability that we face as Indigenous women, that even if we do press charges, there's no one going to have to pay the cost. No one's going to go to jail for any of the rapes. We see this time and time again. Why would we know that our women are going to be at risk and the police are going to do nothing about it. The, the social services will be overwhelmed and have no way to help them. Why would we include that in our economy? We have the choice. We have the choice to govern ourselves and say what economy is good for us and what economy is bad for us. And we say that pipeline and the pipeline industry is bad. It's only going to do more damage and more trauma to our people. And, and we say no, and we're just going to keep on saying no. We do. I have two sons. I do worry for their economics. But to me, I believe that asserting our title and rights, we get more from our economics because we're actually fighting for our Sihuam economics. And that's going to sustain us far into the generations. Whereas this pipeline, and we see this at Mount Polity, at Mount Polly, when the when the tailings dam got um, breached and all that toxic material all went right into the to the Kunal Lake, we see that they had no way of cleaning that up. That's the same with the impacts of rape and murder in our community from these man camps. They have no way of fixing it. There's no remedy for it. And that's why we have to say no one rejects them completely altogether out of our territory. For our listeners, the the reference just now to uh, Gerald Stanley is the uh, the Saskatchewan uh, man who who shot and killed uh, Colton Bushy in in uh, in the summer of 2016, and who was later acquitted by a an all white jury of of uh, by an all non native jury of second degree murder. Mayuk and uh, Kanahus, and and Mayuk, maybe you could start the answer to to this question. One form of resistance that you and others on the territory have undertaken is what's called uh, being tiny house warriors. Um, Mike, you recently posted about five tiny houses that are ready and have been deployed or are going to be deployed on Chemalkwalk territories, uh, the Salmon House, the Black House, the Elk House, the Blue House, and the Green House. You have a sixth one, a warrior house, on its way. Um, you're preparing 10 in total. But please, Mike, tell our listeners about this 
really creative, inspiring form of resistance and, and why you're undertaking this form of resistance, why you're deploying tiny houses on the, on the path of the uh, pipeline, but more importantly, on your territory as Shamokwalk? Well, we have five tiny houses here right on the front line, right, right stopping this man camp construction from happening. So there's five of them. Two of them are solarized. We also got the work from Melina um, from what's her what's Sacred Earth Sacred Earth Solar. She came and she and she donated uh, a whole solar trailer. So the ones that aren't solarized, we run an extension cord and we run power like our lights and um, devices and stuff into the houses. The ones that don't do not have the solar panels on them. And um, but we have since got the offer that she does want Melina does want to help us solarize all of the ten tiny houses. So we're really excited about that. But five of them are here on the front line, and the sixth one, we are going to be traveling up and down the pipeline corridor with a, a radio station. So it'll be a low frequency radio station. I'll go about about twenty five mile radius around and. And we're going to be just giving the information to people, travelers along this Yellowhead Highway, um, the damages that Kinder Morgan has already done here and the Trans Mountain has already done here with the, all the spills that have occurred over these 50-some years of their, their existence here. I think it might even be 60 years, I don't know, 50-something years since their existence and and about the risks that that the Trans Mountain Pipeline will, will have on this beautiful landscape here in Sukhamukuluk. And so that warrior house is dedicated to that radio station. But we also we also see the need for young artists, um, a lot a lot of young hip hop artists that are that need a space to record. So we're also opening it up to the youth, um, indigenous youth that need a space, uh, need a space and the technology to record their own music. And we're hoping that they'll put a, a lot of information out there about a bitumen pipeline, about the, the effects of our title and rights from this pipeline, and just get the information out using this radio station and using the music to educate the people. Because uh, the majority of our Indigenous populations are very young. So you take the majority, the, the, the rest of the Canada, they say they're baby boomers, right? But in ours, the majority is probably under the age of 15, the, the majority of our population. So we do need to support them and we do want them to learn how to speak up for themselves, to have a voice and to be able to be creative about it. And, and so that's what that warrior tiny house will be dedicated to. We're really excited and it's an honor of, of our brother Neski, um, who has passed? Who's who's passed on now? And um, the reason why all these tiny houses are on wheels is to avoid injunction and avoid ending up in lengthy injunction battles in the civil Canadian court, where we are we have no arena to in that court system, the civil injunction or the civil court to address any of our land claims issues. So. So um, we get pulled and dragged into this court. It could take years. It's arrest. It's jail time. And we didn't want to have that. And plus, we have 518 kilometers of pipeline corridor to defend against this pipeline. So that's why each of the tiny houses are on wheels. We are just recently, um, it, it's running until the 20th, right? The, the Tiny House Warrior Auction for Action. And that's the way that we've been raising money for Tiny House Warriors along with our GoFundMe page. But the, 
the um, Tiny House Warriors Auction for Action allows artists to contribute their own art for for us to make fundraising money for the front line. And so we we're really grateful for all the talented artists that are donating so beautiful jewelry, uh, artwork, prints, clothing. Um, that's what made it possible for us to buy two uh, hauling trucks that haul these tiny houses. So we have five on the front line, but we are expanding and we're moving to a different village too. So we're going to have two places and we're also going to be stopping um, some of the construction that's been going right now with another location. So you'll see three or four in the next little while, um, us moving them around and stopping and interfering or delaying the construction. Whatever we could do to affect the investors, affect the money flowing through this, we're going we're gonna to affect it. We're going to stop it and fuck it up. Kanahos and Mayuk, recently uh, on your territories, you held a symposium. Part of the goal of the symposium, from what I understand, is to celebrate the life of your father, Arthur Manuel, a really inspiring, <laughs> inspiring, um, inspiring man uh, who, uh, who has been a resistor uh, his whole life, uh, who was a resistor his whole life. And you, uh, you both, along with others in your community, are continuing his legacy. But the symposium, as you've, as you've already alluded to, was to talk about alternative economies, other ways of resisting. Mayuk, you've already alluded to the fact that the Shemokwalk have your own idea of what entrepreneurship or innovation might mean, which is very different than uh, maybe settler ways of, of conceiving of those things, which are inherently exploitive. So can you, can you give our listeners, I know you've, you've, you've put the audio uh, online so people can listen to the various panels that took place during the symposium, but can you give our listeners uh, a little summary of, of what, what was discussed and some of the important uh, ideas uh, and plans for action that came out of the symposium on your territory. Hello, this is Kanahus here. Um, yes, this symposium, Recovering the Land, Rebuilding the Economy, was a symposium that we organized as a, a part of the two-day gathering in honor of my father. Um, the first day we had a memorial at Mescalnes, and the second day we had this symposium at the Adams Lake Conference Center um, both reserves are just right across the waterway from each other, um, right near the Little Shushwap Lakes and the North Thompson, as it enters into the North Thompson River, or South Thompson River. And we brought together a lot of the colleagues and friends of my father that he worked closely with on many different issues. Um, my father worked on many projects with uh, a lot of them, from the legal to the economic, international human rights it touched on a lot of a lot of these issues, including frontline grassroots land defenders. Um, so we had a broad uh, spectrum within the indigenous movement. Uh, but one of the things that my father was really keen on and addressing and bringing to the forefront was our indigenous economies and how fighting for our land was also fighting for our indigenous economies and that we weren't going to, you know, be able to have our nation if we weren't going to be able to also address and talk about our economies that we were going to look after the people with, that we were going to benefit from, and our people were going to, um, in our vision, flourish again off of the wealth of our Indigenous economies. And we brought amazing people together, but they came to honor my father, really, in the previous day and of course as organizers in our family 
we knew that to honor my father and his legacy, we need to, to organize and have something come out of just um, celebrating his life and honoring him. We needed to continue on doing the work. And we, we all of us, everyone that attended that symposium and all of the speakers on the panel, all had ongoing projects that they were working with my father on. And we continued to work under the Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade. And my brother, Skahish Manuel, is the, the acting director And after my father had passed. And we continued to do this work. And one of the, one of the things that we, projects we worked on and, and worked together with some economists and, and legal advisors was to push, push and bring a risk assessment to the European international banks and financiers and insurance companies over in Europe and Switzerland and and France. Mike, do you want to add anything about your experience of this uh, inspiring symposium and memorial for your for your dad that just took place a few weeks ago? Oh yeah, I was just like really honored just to be around all the people that my dad worked with. There was so much people, there's such a big international spectrum of people that he looked so broadly. So if you work with him on one aspect, you might not ever know that he had this whole other uh, plan or all this other um, big picture and you were just this one part of it, right? So in order to look at the bigger picture, you do need to see all of his colleagues and all the people he worked with. And, and like, people had, like, this, this affection about every time they start talking about when they start working for my father, And then they would have this change of this um, look on their face. And I knew what it was. It made me smile. It was a good, it was a good feeling. And what it was, was my dad had a way of creating a relationship with wonderful minds and then getting them to work for him and work for the cause and actually drop a lot of their life just to dedicate to this cause of our indigenous title. So and freedom for Indigenous people on our land. And the goal was self-determination for us as Sifam. So I really appreciate those relationships my dad had with every single one of the people he worked with because he wasn't, he didn't have the money to pay them. And a lot of times they worked harder for him and for our cause than they did for their own paid positions. And that was what that affection when they talked about when they first start working for Arthur. And I just really appreciate that. And I just really want to applaud all the people that did that because we don't have the money to pay our experts. We don't have the money to pay people who are giving us advice at an international level or about Canadian economy and how to crash their system. You know, we're really grateful for this. And if you have a chance, we're going to be airing more of that in the full-length version of each of the speakers and presenters on their own for um, on YouTube and like um, SoundCloud. So, and we're putting out some a lot of the information that's coming from it. There was so much. I just really want to thank all the speakers and for people who are tuning in and listening to the SoundCloud of, of the symposium. Kanahos and Mayuk, I want to get into the criminalization of resistance. Uh, we've seen this already. So different civil injunctions have been used to to arrest people. There are people who've done jail time for their 
resistance on Burnaby Mountain, which is towards the end of where this pipeline is supposed to be built. A lot of those jail sentences have been happening in the past few weeks. You yourselves have been subject to criminalization. You're just millimeters away, as you as you put it, from this injunction zone. And if you just step a couple of millimeters one way, you can be subject to arrest. And you've already been subject to arrest and criminalization. So talk about that aspect of things, because it's pretty clear from our from this interview and previous interviews that you both, along with other members of your community and other people who are acting as accomplices and allies in this struggle, you want to stop this pipeline. And in order to do so, that might mean pretty intense criminalization, if not worse. So um, talk about how you're confronting criminalization and the criminalization that's already happened. Well, the government, this is Kanahus here. Um, The government of Canada will continue to use whatever means necessary on their part in order to push projects like these pipelines through. The Canadian government has admitted on public radio and news that they would bring the military in to push this pipeline through. And we know that we're always going to be, you know, facing off with Canada. Canada's the second largest country of the world. We're we're fighting pipeline that the Canadian government now owns. You know, they own the military. They can they can fund this pipeline as someone in the symposium said, um, they're writing blank checks for this construction to go through. Um, We've been faced with criminalization, not just from injunctions, and what the charge that is, is a breach of obstruction. It's actually an obstruction charge that they charge you with. And we've been charged with trespassing. We've been charged with Um, mischief and they like to charge us with mischief a lot Um, they charge us with vandalism they'll charge us with blocking a highway they'll block they've charged us with intimidation um, by blocking a highway Um, so much different charges they have charged us with um, fighting for our land this is not just the the transmountain pipeline but fighting for our land continuing my interview with Kanahos Manuel and Mayuk Manuel. They are in Blue River, just across from an injunction zone imposed through the courts uh, on the demand of Trans Mountain, which is trying to expand the pipeline from northern Alberta to the BC coast, uh, a pipeline that will allow for almost uh, 900,000 barrels of uh, bitumen from the tar sands area. Kanahus and Mayuk, we've just talked a bit about criminalization. Maybe, uh, Mayuk, if you want to add, add anything to Kanahus's answer about how people are being criminalized and the possibilities of more criminalization as the resistance to this pipeline steps up in the coming, coming weeks and months. Um, yes, one of the things that my father talked about when he said that when you stand up for your land, you end up with handcuffs face down with handcuffs on and that's what's becoming the norm here in Canada is that native indigenous title holders are standing up in defense of our homeland which is our right an inherent right of ours to defend our land and we are taken away in handcuffs and jailed and we see that more and more all across as people are standing in defense of our self-determination and our right to defend our land and say no to projects that will destroy us. 
um, you see that we're jailed, we're taken away, we're put into this, this criminal justice system. And when we're there, we cannot, there's no avenue when we're in there to address the outstanding land claims issue or anything to do with land. For that matter, uh, we get criminalized. Therefore, the only thing that we're sent in court to defend is actually criminal charges. So if we do bring up anything saying, well, it is our land, we have every right to defend it, they won't listen to those arguments in that in a criminal uh, system that wants to just criminalize us. They'll look, if it's a mischief charge, they'll see if that we're guilty, if we're guilty of mischief. If it's an assault charge, they'll see if we're guilty of assault. But in nowhere in their, in the court proceedings will they ever listen to or address our outstanding land issue and that we have every right to have our own governing system. And when we say it's our land, we say it's our law. So we, um, it's, it's actually a big violation to be pulling us into a Canadian criminal system when we're actually self-determined nation and we have our own laws. And one of our laws is to defend and protect our land. I want to talk about, I want you guys to talk about, both of you to talk about these consultations one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why the Federal Court of Appeal uh, about a year ago decided to temporarily suspend approval for the project was the lack of consultation with what the courts call First Nation communities. Since then, there's been uh, attempts by the Canadian government to undertake those consultations. I also think it's worth reminding our listeners this point should really be hit, should hit home for people, which is that the Trans Mountain pipeline project now is owned by the Canadian government, which means it's owned by, quote-unquote, Canadians, people who are Canadian citizens. Uh, it's, it's been nationalized, which means it's, 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 it basically belongs to everybody, but not in a good way. It just means it's, uh, you know, it's now owned by the government. So since then, there's been all kinds of attempts at consultation. So can you talk about that? It's happened in various phases. Um, during one of those phases, uh, uh, you, Mayuk, were arrested along with other people in the community. Um, the Canadian government has undertaken to uh, get the support of former Supreme Court judges to sort of play this, this role of a mediator between different communities. So can you talk about this consultation process? Because as this case goes back to the Federal Court of Appeal, which it will in the coming days and weeks, um, this consultation will become a focus to decide whether or not, at least for the federal court, to decide whether or not this project should be approved or not. So what do we need to take away from your point of view as grassroots Indigenous land defenders and warriors uh, about this consultation process that's been happening for the last year or so? Yeah, this is kind of who's here. Um, first of all, consultation is not consent. And that the Canadian government has some minimal standards, international standards that they must be abiding by, and that's to get the free, prior, and informed consent of the Indigenous peoples. And in this case, the Sukhwapmuk peoples we're talking about um, over 518 kilometers of this pipeline corridor. They don't have the consent, and they haven't gotten or received the consent, and actually by Sukhwapmuk people standing up and denying that consent for this pipeline to pass. That's all it entails for this pipeline to be stopped within our laws. Since title is held collectively amongst every man, woman, and child within the Sokotmuk Nation, it don't take a lot of people to stand up and say no. We had a, a Sokotmuk Assembly, Sokotmukuluk Assembly within our nation, 
you know, really called on by my father when he was alive and we had it the summer after his passing to have a formal governance council in the Sequatmook Nation to discuss land pertaining to the the pipeline expansion project and and whether Indigenous, whether the Sokotmuk people even wanted this pipeline to cross our lands. Of course, it was unanimous within that Sokotmuk Uluk Assembly that we were not going to allow the passage of this pipeline to happen. And so every single consultation phase that happened around the transportation and the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, all the way from the National Energy Board, where our people and even Wolverine stood up at the National Energy Board and and said, no, there's no consent for that pipeline. Every single phase along the way, Indigenous people, Sukhwatmuk people, have said, no, there's no consent for this pipeline to pass. Every single consultation phase. And we have international Indigenous minimal standards, Indigenous rights standards that, that we want Canada to abide by, that we have the right to say no to these resource extraction projects and they must respect that. We have the right to our own leadership and governance and they must respect that. We've said no. So consultation doesn't mean anything when we've already said no and they said they're going forth with consultation. It shows that they have total disregard to our answer of no in the first place. Mike, did you want to add anything to that? Um, yes, I I was arrested at the Indigenous Consultation Phase 3 that was headed up by Yakabuchi, and um, along with my partner, Aisha Jules, and my younger sister, Snutetko Emanuel, and we faced assault charges, disturbing a peace and mischief. We're going there to say a clear no to the Trans Mountain Pipeline and this Trans Mountain Consultation that was... Uh, a closed door meeting with only a hand, a few hand selected um, Indian INAC chief and councils and resource workers that are pro pipeline. And there was no one in there that was against the pipeline at that consultation. They made very clear of it. And so Aisha Jules, my partner, was able to get in. He's Sikwamuk veteran. He was able to get in and he's a Indian band member and he was able to get into the consultation because. The security guards left their posts at the front door. They were they were guarding the door, preventing us from going in. And they left the post to come and shake me and my sisters around and assault us. He seen the door open and he went through the open doors. And he got in and he said, Sihwamuk have no consent. And he spoke and he took the floor. He actually interrupted Yakabuchi making his opening remarks. And he... And, and for the Trans Mountain and said no. Sihwamung say no to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Sihwamung say no to the man camp and to this consultation. And we know that he was the only one that actually said anything about the social cost about these man camps. And this is very, very important to note because not much long after that, Canada announced genocide, that there was genocide on Indigenous women. The actual intentional wiping out and annihilating of a whole entire race of people. And this is very sick because it's how we pass our land title on to one another in our, in our nation is through the women. 
this is why they're taking them. People aren't talking about our land title and then women are the title holders. This is exactly why they've been taken right since, since Hudson's Bay start doing business on our land and Canada became this corporation. They've been doing it ever since. I'm just like this, the arrest and the, the arrest of me and my family to say no um, to, to the genocide because we went there to address the man camps and address that, no, we cannot let this pipeline construction happen, happen because the man camps is too risky to the lives of Indigenous women, the actual lives, the lives of mothers, sisters, aunties, cousins, kias and grandmothers. These are real lives of families that are going missing, and it's how we pass our title, our land title on into the future generations. Like, this is a big genocidal... Um, it's the whole vibration that this pipeline is bringing our people down. This whole pipeline corridor, it says 518 kilometers, but there's actually real land. It's not just a line on a map, on a paper map. It's actually real life, indigenous lives, animals, like my sister said, the southern resident, the southern mountain caribou, like they have the southern resident killer whale there's also the southern mountain caribou that's also actually fighting for their lives here in the mountains where we're living and we're actually right on not much not far like maybe like 10 kilometers from a main corridor for this extinct species like this is right along the corridor they the they the bc government mapped out the corridor and all along the corridor they put extinct the mountain caribou extinct all along the pipeline corridor and there's only one reason why they did that because this corridor okay. the, 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 the mountain caribou still exists there they're not extinct there they say local extinction extirpated local extinction and they did that for the sole reason to for that their permitting system because they wouldn't be able to approve those permits if they said that there was a, a, a species at risk there there was an endangered species there. So they actually put on their maps, extirpated local extinction all along the pipeline route. That's what they want for our women all along here, because that's where our land title goes. Um, and Jakey, and Jakey, just to just to add that my my sister Mayuk is a GIS mapper and analyst and she's been doing a lot of volunteer work for our nation to map out species at risk, to map out our waters at risk, to map out the man camps and the impacts on our, the, the communities and the transportation corridors. So she's mapped out a lot for our nation. It's really important because we are leading and building up to a big international case against the Canadian government, you know, against Canada and the genocide that it, they inflicted upon us. Uh, for our listeners who are wondering, the dog in the background is named Chacha which means little sister. And it, I've, I've been noticing that Chacha seems to be barking more and more whenever you guys are talking about being arrested or criminalization. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if that, if that has anything to do with it, but uh, I'm not there. But We actually have, like, where the, the man camp location is, um, they, that they want to put the man camp location, is actually a huge blue, wild blueberry ground for our people. 
and um, that's where the bears go. So we that's that's one of the reasons we have the dog here because it keeps the bear out of our kitchen. And yeah, last year the bear got into our kitchen, so this year we have the. There's a lot of bears. There's a lot of black bears, grizzly bears. We're in bear country here, and and we're actually in their berry picking ground. So we pick a little, but most of the time we just we just left a lot of the berries for the bears, and they're, they they eat all of it. There, it's all gone. So, uh, Kanahos and Maya, just a, a couple of more questions. Really, really, yeah, just maybe two or three. One is about the context of your struggle within broader struggles on Turtle Island, but particularly on the part of Turtle Island that's known as the Canadian state or Canada. In Kanazatage, uh, people are, are have, have spoken out more recently. Uh, we've covered it on No Borders Media about land theft and have given an ultimatum to Justin Trudeau last December and January, but part of a longer-term struggle. Um, there was the Gittiman camp and his Stoughton camp uh, opposing pipelines as well. There's lesser-known struggles like the Sudakult camp in uh, north of Vancouver, which has prevented development. So can you talk about solidarity between struggles? To what extent are you paying attention to those other struggles? To what extent is, is that being uh, coordinated? Uh, talk about the, the land defense and warrior struggles across Turtle Island, but particularly in Canada, to oppose not just pipelines, but uh, uh, unfair or unjust natural resource development and ex- extraction industries uh, all, across, uh, all across Canada. Yes, this is Kanahus. We're paying very close attention to all of the Indigenous resistance that's happening all across this continent where we're very impacted um, and connected that way that anything they do to our brothers in the south or to the east, they do to us here and and vice versa. How the Canadian state reacts to us here um, is how they're going to react elsewhere so it's really important for us to stay very connected amongst our indigenous resistance movement and really keep tabs on the way that the federal government is responding to indigenous resistance and the surveillance that takes place i myself just got back from a a trip to chicago to do some alliance building with chairman fred hampton jr of the black panther party cubs and upon Hours upon my arrival back to the tiny house warrior village here in Blue River, we had a visit by the RCMP that came to, um, yeah, unwanted visit by the RCMP that came to, you know, blurt out um, questions saying, you know, what did you do? How was your trip in Chicago? Um, or well, how, are you ready for winter? And we never engage with the RCMP when they come here to our camp. We refuse to engage or acknowledge them, them being low-level civil servants on behalf of the government. Um, we don't engage with them, and but they'll still continue to do things like this. They'll follow us. They'll, they'll, they, they'll stop our people um, coming to and from the camp. And we just see time and time again the type of harassment that we face by by the RCMP, um, but yeah, we know how they're being targeted. We're all being targeted every time we stand up, um, but the more we help raise the awareness of these movements within our platforms, it helps to keep our people safe. Um, one of the things we're doing is really working on documenting um, the human rights, the international human rights violations that are happening at the hands of the Canadian state. Um, so we can start to document, okay, they've came 200 days out of the past year. Um, 
type of data that we're going to be able to expose at the international level, how the Canadian government uses the RCMP, how the Canadian state uses um, other civil servants to crush our movements, to continue to steal land, to push us back to the Indian Reserve, whatever it takes. But as Indigenous resistance movements, we stand in solidarity with all of them. Um, we need to have that pact. They they come in on us here. we got to shut them down over there. Mike, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I just, I I think a lot about, because I do, I do use my dad's book as reference, even though I have all of those discussions in my mind and my heart. I still look at that, his books and I read, I read chapters of it or per, parts of it when I actually just want to feel my dad close to me. And those books are Unsettling Canada and reconciliation manifesto by arthur Manuel, and um one of the chapters in his in one of his books is called white supremacy the law of the land and that's what i feel like when we're we're um we're talking about yeah the policing and the criminalization but it's also all those laws all of what gives the police the authority to come after us when we come out onto their land and who's giving the orders and it's all to do with the the laws and the the politics behind Canada is it's very white supremacist, and that's what's kept us oppressed. That's what dispossessed us from our land, and that's what's um, um, creating this continued oppression upon our people is is this white supremacy, and it's just entrenched in the laws of Canada. It's entrenched in the land uh, land laws and all of this with the permitting. If you have no say, or, or even if we say no, it just gets pushed ahead. All of these um, are all domestic, and like my dad talked about it, and he, you know, he he never he didn't want to fight domestically within Canada, meaning like at the AFM at a, a level or batting like butting heads as Justin Trudeau or anything like that, because like I said, the whole law, all the laws are all white supremacy laws, and. We're never going to win within their system. We're never going to win within their courts. That's what um, the Wolverine said. That's what my dad said. And that's why they always push to get outside of this country to deal with the outstanding land question. And this is where when, and it's proven, um, it's proven that if you get a third party country or third party adjudication to look at the laws They'll, real, they'll, they'll see quite clearly that Canada is not following their laws. So they say rule of law, and it's all about rule of law, and they come in and arrest us and take, it us, take us out. Actually, that is not the rule of law. The rule of law is that we have title to the land. We have title, inherent title, that's running through our veins right now. Canada has the, the jurisdiction to to look after their citizens of Canada. We're not trying to kick the people of Canada out. We're not trying to stop Canada from looking after its own citizens. But there has to be the, a real distribution of wealth and power that has to change in Canada because 0.02% is not going to save us from where we're at in this, this genocidal practice of Canada. We'll just continue under this 0.02% land base we have to get out from it there. There has to be a distribution, a more equal distribution amongst the wealth. So we get our fair share of the wealth. And I'm not talking about industry like pipelines. I'm talking about clean land, sustainable economy, our own energy policies that 
will will take us into the future. Our our land policies, our own food policies that will take us into the future and look after our people because we're poor. A lot of people's only choice is to is to either kill their own selves through suicide, which I call genocide, or or starve or or just keep on struggling through the trauma of like not having an economy. Like that's very traumatic. That's why we're here. It's not just to do our 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 um, berry picking and root digging, although that's very important. We're talking about being able to sustain our own nation, our own nation, the 10,000 Sikhwam, to solve our own problems and look after our own people. This 518-kilometer pipeline will not do that, will not help our people. That's why we say, no, it's not going to help. And, and in order for us not to be criminalized, we have to get outside of Canada. We have to get outside of Canada and address our issues elsewhere. Because as long as we're here in Canada, we're going to continue to get criminalized again and again and again. That's why it's important, the work that Kanahus does, my brother Skahish, with the Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade, and the economic work they're doing internationally. That is what's going to save us as a nation. Kanahus and, and Mayuk, uh, throughout this interview, you've, you've spoken about really the diversity of ways in which resistance takes place from from you know being present physically on the front line through through occupations blockades through the tiny house tactic through talking about other forms of economies through through mobilizing allies worldwide and within the country through fighting in the courts through popular education um, <laughs> just putting out audio and video about the struggle you, you've talked about basically a diversity of ways in which resistance takes place. But one way that resistance takes place that both of you have never been shy about conveying and practicing is the more messier forms, that is, direct action and civil disobedience, the kind of tactics and strategies that a lot of people stay away from. So I'm wondering if you can address that once again, uh, especially in light of the fact that a lot of ENGOs uh, uh, are involved in anti-pipeline resistance, that being opposed to pipelines has become more of a mainstream thing in society, but not everybody's comfortable with the tactics and strategies that frontline people have to use to actually stop those pipelines. So talk about the the kinds of tactics that get used that are often uh, dismissed as too radical or, 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 or counterproductive. Hi, this is Kanahus. Yeah, I always find criticism in movements that want to water everything down. And in this day and age, in this age of our urgency that we really need to, you know, uh, hype the action up. We really need to take more direct action in the face and confront industry, confront government, confront all levels of government, confront them to the people, to the face. When you pull the strings and you find who's at the very end, go to their house, confront them. Don't be scared. Your voice is necessary for us to survive. And, some of these big, bigger global um, climate change movements that are happening right now are amazing, but we have to have the radicals, the anarchists, the ones that are not scared to make the moves that are necessary. We need to create the risk and uncertainty of capitalism, the risk and uncertainty of destructive companies like Trans Mountain, Imperial Metals, um, you know, all these gold companies, Gold Corp, you know, that are going around the world, like 
we need to face off with them and and shake them up where their where their money is at and where they feel the safest. They're affecting our homes and they're destroying our homes. Well, let's go to their homes and see how they like it. And we can't be scared. And one of the things that Wolverine said to me time and time again, don't have any fear. They stood their ground at Gustafson Lake, so we wouldn't have to do that fight like that. Don't be fearful. We are going in, and we are protected in this battle, too, because that's another thing our elders have taught us, to to always have our protection before our action. But action comes in many forms, and sometimes it comes from young people healing. So once they're healing, um, they're on that healing path, and they have a voice again, then they could stand up. So, you know, action comes in many, many forms and to guide and support all the front line, all the young people that are starting to get their voice in poetry and in the arts, support them all because our arts is so closely linked to resistance and decolonization. Mayak, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I just think that because we're Indigenous, we gain our fighting spirit from the stories, the war stories of the past. Like right now, just even in here, we have um, kids homeschooling. So we're listening to the Crazy Horse audiobook and we're listening to all of um, the warfare tactics and the bravery and the courage and, and how, that support, how that supports our nation is to have young men, young women courageous and how they talk about raising their their newborn daughters to raise warriors so it's thought of generational so when um when my my father had us he knew we were going to be warriors he knew we were going to be little fighters and and he would even have chuckles when we'd we'd get sent home uh for being cheeky or get sent home with the note for being cheeky, standing up to these white teachers, trying to be racist to us and put us down. We'd stand up for ourselves. And he'd, he'd chuckle about it, about it. And he'd ask us, how did you learn to be so cheeky? And we said, from you, dad, we learned it from you the best. So he's, he was cheeky. He knew how to stand up for himself. He taught his daughters how to stand up for ourselves. And, and we're teaching our kids how to stand up and speak and have a voice and stand up for them, themselves and other parents all over they have to stand up don't let your your children see you cower down anytime there's an opportunity to stand up you stand up don't let yourself get bullied you stand up and you fight back kanahos and uh, mayuk i wanted to ask one last question and uh that's around um the climate crisis and the fact that um there's been a huge focus uh, worldwide on climate change on mobilizing around it there's going to be uh, we're speaking today on, on September 15th. Uh, there's going to be the global climate strike happening on both September 20th and September 27th. Thousands, hundreds of thousands mobilizing all around the world, people engaging in, not, in direct action as part of things like Extinction Rebellion. Capitalist parts of society who've, who've rebranded themselves as green or caring about climate change. It's just a lot of focus on that. And that's that focus has happened within the last decade or so while you guys have been engaging the front lines. I'm just wondering... How do you engage this, the, the movement around climate change? To what extent uh, do you have a critique of it? To what extent are you part of it? Uh, give, our, give our listeners a sense of how, how folks, indigenous folks on the front lines of resisting pipelines, which means resisting climate change, take in uh, this, uh, this incredible worldwide movement uh, around the, the climate crisis. Kyle, who's here? 
Indigenous peoples are at the front line of climate change. We are the most impacted. We feel the the actual attacks right now. Um, we feel it by our food harvesting practices. We feel it by our waters um, rising in, in the north. We feel it by, you know, our salmon going deep, deep into our rivers so we can't even fish them with our dip nets anymore. We're feeling them in so many different ways. And, you know, that's why we say there's such a big urgency because it's actually affecting our dinner table. It's actually taking food out of our children's mouths. There's so much Fisher families in our nation right now that has gotten zero salmon this year. Ones that are used to putting hundreds of salmon away for a year don't have any for the winter. This is what climate change means to Indigenous people. And, you know, the only way that that we're going to make any changes is if we actually make changes in our households. My family left the Indian Reserve, packed up and moved out of the only home on the little Indian Reserve, the 0.2%, to move out onto a pipeline corridor to block it with our bodies. That's the type of dedication and commitment that we have and that the people of the world need to have right now. Um, this is not just about an airy fairy march, climate change, um, climate youth students strike, walk out. No. You either check out of this world and die or you fight back. And that's where we're at right now. This has been an interview with Kanehos Manuel and Mayuk Manuel. In case people didn't catch on, they are sisters. They are on the front lines of the struggle against the Trans Mountain Pipeline and defending the sovereignty of the Sangakbal people along with many other people. We were speaking to them uh, in the Blue River, literally as they put it, within millimeters of the injunction zone, where if they cross, they can be subject to arrest. Kanahos and Mayuk, thank you again for speaking with us on No Borders Media. Thank you, Jaggy. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, listening to a No Borders Media feature interview with Shemakmok women warriors Kanahos Manuel and Mayak Manuel about ongoing indigenous resistance to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. They spoke to us from the front lines just outside the injunction zone at Blue River, British Columbia. Listeners are encouraged to consult the show notes for links to online fundraisers in support of the efforts of Kanahos and Mayak. If you didn't know, Kanahos and Mayak are twin sisters. After our formal interview, they wanted to share this call out about the expansion or twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Twins against the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities and resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. We end the show with the Wake Up Song by George Manuel Jr., recorded live in April 2015 on Shemekbilk territory.
Oh yeah.